Good morning. Uh, for those that don't, that I haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross City. Um, I'm excited to, uh, well, excited, maybe not as excited as normal, but uh, today's message is a little heavy. So, um, uh, but I am excited always to jump into God's Word and hear what He has for us. But um, as we get into our text today, we're going to find the weight of it. Um, oftentimes, as we as we we work our way through a book of the Bible like we are right now uh, in the book of Romans, um, you know, it, it can, we, we encounter passages uh, that weigh differently, that, that hit us differently, that we encounter in different ways that speak different facets of God's truth and different aspects of it. And, and one of those is, is today. So we're going to be in, in Romans chapter 3, thanks to, to Juan for uh, reading that for us. And uh, if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to, to go ahead and turn there to Romans chapter 3. And as we're going to see, you know, as, as we've been working our way through this text, this book of Romans, this sort of meaty, heavy, heavyweight book of the Bible, so to speak, um, it's pretty dense. You know, God's word in and of itself is, is rich. It's dense, right? There's, there's substance to it. It's like a it's like a nothing bundt cake. Have you ever had one of those? Right? Like those are so, they're so good, but they're just really dense, right? There's a lot packed into those cakes, but it's delicious, right? The outcome works out really, really well. And so in God's wisdom, as he has put together his word, as he has put the scriptures together, as we know them and as we see them, you know, we... Oftentimes, we'll read the Bible in large chunks, right? We, we, we need to read big, fast reads through a, an entire book of the Bible. But often, other times, it's good for us to, to slow down and read smaller chunks. Take our time, focus in, right? But this is the beauty of God's Word. It, it's, it's meant to be read in both ways. It's meant to be read largely to understand the larger context, to lar- understand the larger story of what God is trying to communicate. But... We, we can dial our microscope in, and, and the further we dial it in, the, the more intricacy and the more beauty we, we see as we dial our way into God's truth. It's, it's beautiful how God has set up His Word. So we need God's Word to help us understand God's Word. Right? We need Scripture to help us interpret Scripture. And so this morning we're, gonna, we're encountering a passage that we, we need to, we need, if, if we have it in our minds, to, to pull and recall God's promises, God's larger story, as we work our way through this heavy and dense and weighty passage. That's why, you know, today I, I've titled our sermon today just The Bad News, right? Simply put, this is, this is the bad news that God wants us to know. He wants us to know this truth. He, he has it for us. He's written it in His Word, and it's incredibly important for us to understand the message of what He's trying to communicate to us through Paul as he's writing this book. And when Paul would write these letters to these churches, I think generally the intent was that these letters would be read sort of in one sitting. Right? This is one cohesive letter, so, so we're kind of entering our way into a particular portion of this letter that has a broader context. So it's important for us to, to understand that, but today... It is important as we sort of dial our microscope in, we're going to get to see a facet of God's truth that's incredibly important, but it's incredibly weighty as well. So in these 12 verses today, um, they're heavy, 
but it makes what, the, what these passages do, and I think what Paul is trying to accomplish here, is he's, he's making the gospel incredibly personal. It's personalizing the gospel. It's bringing it down onto the lap of everyone that hears it. It's right in front of your face, right onto your lap, right? I like what Ray Ortland says. The gospel, the gospel doesn't float in midair. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't just hang up here as this ethereal, theoretical thing. When we read texts like our text today, it brings the gospel right into our lap. It brings it right onto the ground. It's really important for us to, to, to move it from a theoretical thing to a, to a personal, personal thing. It's like a, a, like a doctor's diagnosis. Many of you medical professionals in the room, you, you know that a doctor, uh, the ability for a doctor to treat an illness or a disease is only as good as the diagnosis of that disease. If you don't have the proper diagnosis, then you're not going to have the proper treatment. Very, very easy for us to make that connection. And so today we're, we're, we're dealing with a little bit of the diagnosis it's a heavy diagnosis. It's the, it's the doctor coming into the room with a somber look on his face and giving the, the hard news of, of a hard diagnosis of here's what the problem actually is. There's weight to it. There's gravity. Today's text helps us to answer an incredibly important question that we all have to answer whether we're aware of it or not. In our minds, we think of it, we have a category for it. Question is, are people fundamentally good or are people fundamentally bad? It's a question at hand today. And how we answer that question has incredible implications. It touches into so many facets of our life. How we interpret the world around us. How we parent our children. How we set up our government. How we approach our marriage. How we approach uh, the policing, every, literally everything that we do just about has implications based upon how we answer this question, how we see mankind, how we see the people around us. Fundamentally, it's a really important question. So we get to, we get to Romans chapter 3, where we are today, and Paul's, Paul's sort of making this case. He's building out this argument. He's trying to, he's trying to help teach the Romans and us, God's word, God's truth, the message of the gospel. And he's, and he's building this case. He's making this argument against mankind, essentially. He's building this, this argument against humanity. In chapter 1, he makes it very clear about Gentiles, as he calls them, Greeks. The sinfulness of, of the world, right? Gentiles, people who reject God, suppress the truth, makes it very clear. Chapter 2, we talked about how he, he shifts the focus. Then he says, okay, it, it's very easy to see how the Gentiles have rejected God, but we also need to pay attention to how the Jews, the people of God, have also rejected God through self-righteousness and an inability to keep the law. He's, he's, he's not leaving any uh, stone unturned. He's, he's going after everybody equally. He's an equal, equal opportunity offender, so to speak. And here in chapter 3, he, he kind of, makes his closing argument, right? This, this case, his main point of what he's trying to communicate, leading into other things that we're going to get into as we work our way through Romans. 
And, and, and I, I think I want to synthesize, and this is sort of our main point today. Every person ever is a sinner by nature and by deed. And is unable on their own to do anything about it. Every person who's ever lived, except for one. Spoiler alert. Aside from Jesus, every person who's ever walked the globe, every person in this room, every person you've ever met, every person on TV, every actor, every politician, every police officer, every prisoner, every mom, every grandma, yes, even your grandma, is a sinner by nature and by deed. Born under the curse of sin, that impacts the very core of who we are as people. It goes deep into the core of our being. Now, a little bit of finesse here, right? Like, what it doesn't mean, as Lorraine Bettner says, it doesn't mean that all people are equally bad, or, nor does it mean that anyone is as bad as they could be. Even the most wicked person that we can think of is not as wicked as they could be. There's always more evil that could be done in quantity and scope. But what it does mean is that every person is totally corrupted by sin in their thoughts, in their deeds, in their motivations. All of it is corrupted, it's polluted by sin by unrighteousness, by wickedness, all these terms that the Bible uses. What this does is that makes all humans both, both helpless victims of the curse of sin and yet at the same time willing participants in rebellion against God. So we see two facets of it, right? The, the curse of sin that, that makes us victims of sin, but also makes us willing participants in rebellion against God. Both sides of the coin. Now, I understand that this is a big claim. This is a weighty claim. This is a very hefty theological premise that we're talking about. These are deep, deep waters that we could spend a lot of time unpacking. But for our sake today, I want to just follow Paul's train of thought and his argument as he's sort of making his closing arguments against, in this accusation against all of mankind in their sinfulness. So verse 9. Let's pick it up there. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin, right? This is what we talked about, chapter 1, chapter 2. He's like, this is my case I'm building. I'm, I'm making this charge that Jews and Greeks, everyone in the world, basically, is what he's saying, is under sin. And then he goes to sort of back up his argument with Scripture, quoting from largely the Old Testament, Psalms, some from Isaiah. He's saying, here's, here's what, what God has to say. He, he shifts. He's like, I'm just going to go straight to the Word of God to, to tell you, this isn't just my idea. Paul's not just making this up. This is what God is saying. 
he's quoting God. He says, as it is written, right? He's saying, God says, none is righteous. No, not one. Let's just pause right there. Okay, None is righteous. He uses the word righteous. None is righteous, not even one. No one has righteousness. Not even one person has it. Okay, so if this is what he's saying, what does he mean by righteousness? It's a fair question for us to ask. We need to ask ourselves, okay, what does that mean? Because I think we can have misconceptions about what we think when we think of righteousness. Sin, righteousness, all these things. We have to be really clear on what he's actually saying here. So the better question is, what is God's expectation for what righteousness is? Not mine, not yours, not even Paul's. What is God's expectation for what righteousness is? What does a person have to do to be considered righteous in God's eyes? Because after all, right, Paul just talked about God is the one who's going to be doing the final judging. He's the one whose opinion actually matters. So what does he consider God? What does he consider to be righteousness? What does he count as righteousness? So I think there's there's we'll call it a a three legged stool of righteousness, right? You've ever, you know, we had the concept of a three-legged stool, right? You've got to have all three legs or the stool falls over. Okay? Pretty simple. So, God's Word gives us a three-legged stool of what God considers to be righteousness. What He accepts as righteousness. So, let's talk about this. Let's, let's dig into this a little bit. What are the three legs of the stool? So, one, we have the standard. Two, we have the goal. And three, we have the motive. Okay? I'm going to explain this. We have to hit the standard, we have to hit the goal, and we have to hit the motive. And anything that we do in order for it to be considered by God, according to his word, as righteous. Okay, so the first one, let's start there. The standard. This is probably the easiest one for us to sort of wrap our minds around. This is what we commonly think about. This is God's commands, right? God's law. God says, do this or don't do this, right? Pretty easy, pretty clear. What has God clearly spoken? What are the rules that God has given us? This is the standard, right? There can be either sins of commission or sins of omission, things that we, we commit or things that we don't do that we should do, right? So if God says, uh, don't steal. If you steal, pretty easy to know, okay, that's unrighteousness. God said, don't do this, and I did it anyway. Pretty easy, unrighteousness. That's sin. Or sins of omission, things that God tells us to do that we don't do. God says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. If you are apathetic towards your wife or cruel or abusive, that's sinful. That's unrighteousness. God has said, this is what I want you to do, and you didn't do it. That's unrighteousness. Pretty clear, right? Pretty easy to quantify this leg of the stool, the standard that God gives us. Pretty easy. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Pretty, it's like right there it is. Sin is lawlessness. That's, that's, the, that's God giving us a clear definition of the standard, right? If we disregard his law, we disobey him, that's sin. Okay, the second leg of the stool. So we have the standard, but we also have the goal of what we do. In order for an act 
to be considered righteous in God's eyes, the goal of that act must be to the glory of God and to the success of his kingdom. Think about it, right? 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what God says. So if we're not doing it for the glory of God, it's unrighteous. Matthew 6.33 But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Right. So here's where it starts to get real, right? Here's where we start getting into, oh, okay. It starts getting tricky because this is how, okay, so this is how it's possible for you to do good things and still be considered unrighteous, right? This is how God looks all over the world and he sees people helping old ladies across the street. And he sees people giving money to homeless shelters. And he sees people adopting orphans. And he can look at that and he can say, okay, those are, those are fine things to do. Those are good things to do. But you're not doing those things for my glory or for the success of my kingdom. So those, doing those things does not make you righteous in my eyes. It's, it's, it's deeper, right? He's, he's taking it deeper than just follow the rules or don't follow the rules, right? He's getting into the, the goal of us following the rules. What's the purpose of it? Is it to bring you glory? Are you giving that homeless man money so that people will look at you and go, oh, wow, that's awesome, great job. It's unrighteous. That's what he says. If it's for my own glory, and if it's not for the sake of God's kingdom and for the advancement of his kingdom, it's considered by God to be unrighteous. So we must obey God and keep his standards and... We must do it with the right goal, to glorify God and to advance his kingdom. So those are the first two legs of the stool. The third leg is the motive. We must be motivated, God says, by true faith and by love. By true faith and by love. A little bit later in Romans, chapter 14, Paul says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. God's saying through Paul to us, if it's not coming from a posture of trust and allegiance to God, it's not righteous. 1 Corinthians 13.1 read in every wedding that you've ever been to. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Right? Love. The two greatest commandments, right? Love God and love your neighbor. It's right there, right? So he, he's giving us, he, he's fleshing out this idea of what righteousness is. He's saying it's more than just you obeying the rules. Checking it off your list. Like, okay, uh, give some money to the church, got it. Uh, go help a widow, got it. Go adopt an orphan, got it. Okay, God, am I righteous? And God goes, well... Did you do it for my glory and my, the advancement of my kingdom? Were you doing it from a posture of trust and of love for your neighbor? Because if not, then you were doing good things, but you were doing unrighteous good things, quote unquote. That's hard, right? It's heavy. He's, he's, he's explaining to us the depth 
of righteousness is, of, of His holiness is. The standard that He's setting before us. Obedience without faith and love is sinful obedience. It's possible to sinfully obey God. It's weird, right? It's kind of weird for us to process that in our minds. This is how Jesus can look at the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees? Jesus can look at the Pharisees say, and say, you're doing a lot of correct behaviors, but you're whitewashed tombs. This is why he says it to them. In Matthew 23, 28, he says, So you also outwardly appear righteous to others. He said, Notice he doesn't say you don't appear righteous to me or to the Father. He says you appear righteous to others. But within, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is Jesus dialing in on this very concept, right? He's saying it's not enough to just do the right rules. That doesn't make you righteous before God. He says, you have the appearance of righteousness, but inside your motive and your goal are wrong. You're doing the right things. You are doing them for your own glory, and you're, doing them from a, and you're not doing them from a posture of trust and love for your neighbor. And so sometimes what he's saying here, sometimes we can fool each other, right? But we can't fool God. We can, we can look at each other and we can think, oh, that's a nice guy. He's a good guy. He's doing, he's doing all right. But God is not mocked, right? He's not deceived. He's not fooled by the external whitewashed tomb. He's not, he's not fooled by it. He sees the heart. He sees our motive. He sees our goal. He knows what our intentions are. And he's not fooled by it. And he looks at it and he goes, it's unrighteous. Yes, it may be of a, of a short-term benefit to society. It may be of a short-term benefit to your neighbor. But it's, but it's not considered righteousness according to my standards. It's not enough to give you eternal life. It's not enough to make you equal to me. It's what he's saying. It's heavy. So we have the standard, the goal, and the motive of righteousness. And this three-legged stool, if we remove one of the legs, the stool falls over. It's not righteous. They're all required. We must obey God, yes. We must Obey Him for the sake of His glory and His kingdom. And we must obey Him trusting that what He says is actually good and right. We must obey Him from a posture of love for Him and from our, for our neighbors. That's hard. Dare I say, that's impossible. In our flesh, it's impossible. So, so here we see, right? Paul is making this accusation against all of humanity, that no one is able to accomplish righteousness on their own. That's his point. And that's, that's, that's our large takeaway, right? No one is able to accomplish righteousness in our own flesh, in our own strength, by our own effort. It doesn't come from us. We can, well, we'll get into that. I don't want to get ahead of myself. And he even says, earlier in the chapter, right, he talks about the advantage that the Jews have, right? He says the Jews have an advantage. They have the oracles of God. They have the word of God. 
They had the promises of God. And those things are true and right and good, but it didn't give them an advantage to produce righteousness in and of their flesh. It didn't do that for them. It still left them in need. And he's going to explain why. Right? And so as we, move, as we move through this, he's going, to, he's going to continue to make his point. He's going to drive this point home for us. And he uses mostly Scripture, right? Mostly Psalms to make this point. Verse 11. Let's sort of work, walk our way through what he's saying here. Verse 11, he says, No one understands and no one seeks God, seeks for God. How many people understand? Zero. How many people of their own accord, of their own effort, of their own volition, seek after God? None. No one. That, I mean, that's significant. If that really is true, that is absolutely incredibly significant it touches every single aspect of what we do as a church right it pokes it pokes holes in a lot of people's church philosophy of how they do ministry how do we think about how do we share the gospel how does that impact how we share the gospel with people it's significant no one understands no one seeks for god not only are we fundamentally unrighteous by our own nature and by our own practice, but on our own, we don't even know where to go or what to do to fix the problem. No one understands God on their own, and no one seeks after God on their own. This is a similar type of language that we see in Romans 1, right? Paul describes how we, in our sin, suppress the truth of God, and we seek our own interests rather than the interests of God. We exchange the glory of God for created things. Lesser things. Created things. That don't measure the, the measuring stick of righteousness. So we don't understand God and we don't seek after Him. And this is the state of every single person on their own. Something has to happen to us before we understand and before we seek God. Something has to happen to us first. That's what he's saying. And it's not something that we dig deep enough to find. It's not something that we can go to enough therapy sessions to find. It's not something that we can educate ourselves into. It's not something that we can discipline our children into. It's not something that we can legislate. It's, it's not. It's not where we find the answer. It's not where we find the solution. Ultimately. Not to say that none of those, all of those things are good. Right? Those are all good things that, we, that by God's common grace He has given us to restrain evil in the world. And, but, but those are not the things that God has said fix the problem. It's heavy, right? It's really, really heavy. Verse 12. He says, All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Just in case you were wondering, you were thinking of that one person. I know that one guy. He's like, no, not even that guy. Not even one. The person that you're thinking of, not even him, not even her. Not even you. Not even me. None of us. We don't do good. We don't do what is required. We don't, we don't measure up to the standard. And he says... That we've all turned aside and we've become worthless. 
Now, this is where this, this translation of this word is a little tricky for us. He's not saying that humans don't have worth or dignity. We're, we're all given a semblance of worth and dignity because we're made in the image of God. It's not what he's saying here. It's essentially saying that because we are fundamentally unrighteous by our nature, our works and our behavior are useless. They're worthless in God's court of judgment. It's worthless. You shouldn't, you shouldn't even bring it to the courtroom. Right? Your portfolio of all your good works, exhibit A, evidence, and it's like, that's worthless. That means nothing. In, the, in this courtroom, that doesn't help you, is what he's saying. You become worthless, unable to, unprofitable to accomplish this. No one is good enough. Not even one person. And then he keeps going. He describes how our sinful nature is expressed in what we say and in what we do. We keep reading what we say and what we do. Verses 13 and 14. Notice the theme here, right? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, that's a snake, is under their list, lips. I almost said lips, lisp. Easy for me to say. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Throat, tongues, lips, mouth. See a pattern? One way you can tell that humans are sinful is through what we say. This is how sin that lives in us, that our nature, expresses itself. Jesus, of course, sums it up very well in Luke chapter 6. Verse 45, he says, Out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Whatever's in your heart, whatever rules and reigns in your heart, in the core of who you are, the most fundamental nature of your being, whatever has precedence in there is going to come out of your mouth. You're going to talk about it. You're going to, it's going to affect what you say. Out of the abundance of wickedness in the hearts of men come words of death, words of deception, poison, venomous words, Words of curses. Words of bitterness. If you don't believe me, just go online. Just go on any comment section of anything ever posted publicly online. Right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the fingers tweet. Right? It's, it's there. You see it. Vile words. Vile things. And not just the words themselves, but you, you, can, you can hear the hearts of the people that are, that are typing these things, that are saying these things. Just venom, right? Deceitfulness, wickedness, death, words of death, words of curse, words of bitterness. It, we hear it all around us, all the time. It comes out of our own mouths from time to time. Our sinful nature shows up in what we say and in what we do. Verses 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And we, have, we have been made painfully aware of this over the past few weeks, haven't we? 
news is, is just full of bloodshed, ruin, misery. It's heartbreaking. We see what, we, what people do to one another. It's, it's shed, they, they're, they're, they're swift to shed blood. They leave a path of ruin and misery. Brutality. This is sin expressing itself. Working its way out of us. Mankind. It's all around us. But Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. If we do not know Him, we have no peace with God and we have no peace with man. He is the author of peace. He's the originator of peace. And Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how there's these walls of hostility. There's walls of hostility between us and God, and there's walls of hostility between us and other people. And it says Jesus came to break down all of those walls, walls between us and God and walls between us and each other. There are no longer in Christ walls of hostility. He brings peace. He brings reconciliation. That's the only place that we are going to find True peace and true reconciliation. Jesus. And our sinful nature and our corrupt state, sin dominates. It dominates our speech. It dominates our actions. Jesus says in John 8, 34, that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin dominates us in our own flesh left to our own devices we are dominated by sin we are a slave to sin that's what jesus says we're unable to break those chains on our own paul here is describing in great detail our total inability to make ourselves righteous before god we have a total inability to do it No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. Our efforts are worthless. All our words and deeds provide proof, all the proof we need, that as verse 18 says, there is no fear of God before our eyes. No fear of God before our eyes. We don't fear God. We don't respect Him. We don't trust Him. We don't revere Him. We don't listen to Him. We don't care about His glory. We care about our glory. We don't care about His kingdom. We care about our kingdom. And this is the natural born state of every person in this room. Every person on this globe. Or whatever else it is if you're a flat earther. I don't know what you call it. This is the state of every person who has ever walked this globe, except for one. And then, in verse 19, Paul, he starts to make his closing arguments, right? He's he's, he's leading us to something, right? The the grand finale that we're going to get to next week. Verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. 
and the whole world may be held accountable to God. He's already made it clear that everyone will stand in the courtroom of God and face his judgment. This is an undeniable truth of God's word. We will all stand in the courtroom of God and we will face his judgment. And when he begins to assess our righteousness according to his law, he says that every mouth will be stopped. Every case that we could try to make that our works are enough, that our behavior is enough, it will be overruled, be insufficient. Every person who tries to present present the evidence of a good life lived in the power of their flesh will be silenced before him. You will have nothing to say. When we are face to face with the complete and utter flawless holiness of God, we shut up and we listen. We think about the story of Job. In Job 40, God comes to Job. And he says, he says to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Right? This is, this is essentially what God's getting at here. And then Job, it says that Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. He knows. When God, when God presents himself in his fullness and his holiness, the only thing that Job can do is put his hand over his mouth. He knows that there's nothing that he can say in that moment that will be sufficient that comes from him. There's no room for argument in that moment. There's no room to plead a different case. You see it in Isaiah chapter 6 where, where Isaiah is face to face with the holiness of God. And what does he immediately notice? He says, I am a man of unclean lips and he shuts his mouth. I have nothing to say that will suffice in the face of the, the, the furious holiness of God, the all-consuming fire of God's holiness. What we bring in our flesh will get burned. It will not last. It's not sufficient. Every mouth will be stopped, he says. And we will be held accountable. So Job and Isaiah understood well what Paul says in verse 20. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. None. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. Knowledge of sin. The law is good and right, but it has a design. The design of the law is to show us our fallenness. And our response to it is to feel fallen. The law was good at what it was designed to do, but the law 
cannot do what the gospel does. The law cannot and is not intended to do what the gospel does do. The law shows us the bad news. This is bad news that we are unable to produce righteousness in and of ourselves. But there's good news. That's why they call the gospel good news. That's why that word means good news. That's what the word gospel means. Good news. There is good news. And it is good news because it's in contrast to what? The bad news. If, if there wasn't bad news, then it wouldn't be good news. It would just be news. That's why they call it good, right? Because there's a contrast. We see the bad news, and then along comes this better news. That God has provided a way for righteousness to come to us. There is a way for us to be counted as righteous before God. It's possible, but it only comes through the good news. The gospel comes through one place. One person who says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's the only place we go. That's, that's all we can claim when we stand in the courtroom of God. And we're, we're, we're face to face with His holiness. The only thing that we can plea is Jesus. His life, His death, His blood over us. That's it. That's the only thing that we can bring into that scenario that's worth a nickel. Way more than a nickel. The law shows us what is intended to show us. That we cannot produce righteousness. But the good news is that righteousness has come to us. We can, we can have that righteousness, but it doesn't come from within us. It comes from outside of us and is given to us. It is gifted to us. It is graced to us by God above. And that is our only hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for this bad news. <laughs> we thank you that we, we get to know our true state before you. We thank you and praise you for the truth of your word that, that you are very clear with us about our, our state before you in our own flesh, of our own devices. You're very, very clear that we are unable in and of ourselves to produce what is necessary. But you have given, you have in your kindness, in your love, in your mercy, have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You have given us Yourself in Christ. The righteousness of Christ. We have been crucified with Him. It is no longer we who live, but it is Christ who lives in us. And that, Father, is our only hope. So we plead the blood of Jesus this morning. In the face of our insufficiency, in the face of our struggle, our trials, and we throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and we give up and we cling to him. And we praise you for that truth in Jesus' name. Amen.